The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, a trip through Beatles history. The year is 1985, and this is Episode 1. This episode covers the months of January through March. ...gathered in Times Square awaiting the dropping of the Big Apple here atop number one Times Square. And here's a man who isn't dressed for the weather who just came in from out of the cold. He was down at Nirvana Club One Restaurant celebrating and dancing and dining. Julian Lennon, is there anything at all like this at home? Uh, well, it does get pretty crazy in uh, Piccadilly, you know, from time to time. But it's the first time you've ever been here for this? Yeah, it's the first time I've witnessed anything like this. Ah, it's crazy, but it's great. What is your wish for 85? Uh, well, a peaceful year, you know. hope everybody gets on with each other. Thank you so much. Happy New Year, Julian. Nice to have you with us. Enjoy the crowd. This is Times Square with the advent of 1985 on its way. And everybody's having a grand time in New York. They're getting excited now because it's moving down.
look at what weather has in store. Here's Ian McCaskill. Hello there. This long band of high pressure and these cold winds do mean a frosty spell of weather for us all. Uh, a pretty cold one, as you can see, a fairly widespread frost. On January 4th, Paul, Linda and the family escaped Great Britain's Arctic weather by taking the Concorde from London's Heathrow Airport to New York's Kennedy Airport. Traveling incognito, Paul's reservation on board was booked under the name Mr. Winters. Please, please call me Winter. Winter? Oh, yes, yes. Although some flight attendants knew. Linda also joined in the fun as Mrs. Winters. It was around this time in January that Paul turned down an offer of one million pounds to appear in eight episodes as a wealthy British landowner on the American television show, Dallas. Paul's reason for turning down the part was that he didn't wish to be away from his family for so long as Hollywood demands. Also around this time in the UK, Argos Software in association with Paul and MPL released a computer game version of Give My Regards to Broad Street. The game allows the player to control Paul driving through a maze of London streets in his Ford Popular to various tube stations while a computerized band on the run plays. Once at the station, Paul gets out to collect a few notes to the song No More Lonely Nights. Once the player finds and collects all the notes, the player must then drive through a maze of streets to Abbey Road Studios. Once there, Paul will assemble the notes and mix them. This signals the end of the game. On January 18th, Wilfred Brambell, Hello. Paul's grandfather in the film A Hard Day's Night, died of cancer at his home in Westminster, London. This Irish-born native is best remembered for playing the grubby, rag-and-bone man, Albert Steptoe, in the BBC television sitcom Steptoe and Son. Second day. Second hand, I never had nothing new. Second hand, second hand, but what's a bloke like me to do? He was 72 years old. He's a nice old man, isn't he? He's very clean. Sweeter than wine. Do, 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 do. 
As a result of a deal between EMI Recording Studios of London and Melodia Music, the Soviet state-run record company, Beatles music in the form of two LPs, A Hard Day's Night and A Taste of Honey, is officially released in Russia in a limited supply of 300,000 copies. Tasting much sweeter than white. I'm J.J. Jackson. Do you have the music news for you? Melodia, Russian's only record company, put out 300,000 copies of A Hard Day's Night and A Taste of Honey. The albums quickly sold out, forcing the record stores to turn away long lines of fans that were quite eager to shell out three and a half rubles, which is about five dollars, for the never-before-available albums. This has prompted a cry of help, so Melodia plans to press more Beatle LPs as well. And George Harrison makes a rare on-screen appearance in a video for Eric Clapton's new song, Freedom. The video, which also features Ringo Starr and Deep Purple's John Lord, is actually the closing scene from the upcoming comedy film, Water. Give us tomorrow 
video, there are so many legendary performers. Ringo Starr, Eric Clapton, George Harrison. Incidentally, we have the drummer's guy named Ray Cooper, who you might remember from the Arms Tour. On January 18th, the same day as Wilfred Brambell's passing, George Harrison's handmade films movie titled Water has its world premiere at the Odeon Cinema in London. The movie's yet another production from Harrison's company Handmade Films, which is also producing Madonna and Sean Penn's Shanghai Surprise. Coincide with the film's release in the UK, Audio Tracks Records released the single Freedom by the Singing Rebels Band. The song was taken from the soundtrack of the movie Water. The B-side is a song titled Celebration, and it is written by George Harrison and Mike Moran. The track is sung by Jimmy Helms.
promote the release of the film Water and his film company, Harrison is interviewed at his handmade films office in London for the BBC's television show Newsnight. for Robin Denslow's exclusive interview with George Harrison, the first interview he's given in several years. The shy, retiring former Beatle is, of course, gradually moving his career from music to films. But as a George Harrison interview is a rarity, the film company, of which he's co-owner, Handmade Films, tends to get overlooked up against well-known, successful names in British films like Goldcrest, for instance. Last week, however, Handmade hit the box office charts with two films in the top five in London. Last night, the provincial premiere of one of them, Water. With Water, the finance collapsed literally days before filming was due to start. Here now is Robin Denslow's report. As Handmade has gently established its place in the British film world, George Harrison has been content to stay in the background, shying away from publicity and from performing. But in Handmade's new comedy, Water, he's been persuaded to actually appear. Uh, Ringo, who's this? A and George, what's this? It's, a, it's who's this and what's this? Together again. He plays in the backing band of singing gorilla Billy Connolly, presenting his case at the United oh God, Nations. Concert for Cascara. Brush is tapping his foot on three. Forget politics. Go for groin. You've invaded our homes and our privacy. Taken everything except the sun and the sea. We've come here to ask you most humbly. Please, won't you grant us our liberty? We want our freedom. Give us our freedom. But is this cameo appearance a sign that Harrison is now interested in appearing in his films? Yeah, I wouldn't mind being more involved in film, but not particularly like that. I don't want to be a star. I've been offered, uh, after the Beatles films, you know, and through the late 60s, I was offered all kinds of crazy parts, the, the white swami and, you know, all these sort of crazy things. But I don't want to be a film star. I don't even want to be a pop star. I just want to, you know, live in peace. But I would like to be more involved in, uh, in some way, and that is uh, to say that I would like to get more of my ideas onto film, that is, more ideas against killing and against blood and against uh, noisy madness. I'd like to go and see a film that actually made you come out of the theatre feeling very joyous and happy. And I don't know exactly what that film is, but I may end up making my own 8 mil, which I'll show you. <laughs> I mean, that would be good to have a huge successful movie that really made a fortune so we can pay back all these banks and then uh, decide to retire or make the film um, you know the the film of your choice of my choice here in one of the very few television interviews Harrison has given since way back in the Beatles days he explained the types of film he champions with handmade and the agreeably casual way he keeps an eye on his risky multi-million pound business 
Well, my role is I pop in and out, I hear what's happening day to day, I make any suggestions I can, and uh, I can choose. I'm in a lucky position, really, because I'm not um, trying to be David Putnam. Uh, that is to say, I don't have to be there every day taking care of the business. Because you have appeared publicly so little, people have talked about you as being a recluse these yeah. days. Is that I fair? Know. It's silly. <clears throat> the only... <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't go to places where Bam Basbig Boy goes or where Nigel Dempster goes. Or I just don't go to those discos and things like that. They make out as if I never leave the house. I go out the house all the time. I just try and live a life of a normal human being. If I have a hit record, they're all knocking on the door again, phoning me up, you know, so I don't particularly want to be that side. I've had that concentrated in the 60s and early 70s. I've done that, and it's boring, you know? And I like to live um, sort of quiet life, so therefore they think I'm this Howard Hughes with fingernails down to my toes. Um, but it's quite a good image. I don't mind it, it now. It does not upset you it, that people it, write about you like that. It used to annoy me, but uh, it doesn't bother me. And what's your ambition for Handmade now? Handmade? Uh, I don't have many ambitions at all. Not for Handmade, not for anything, really. I think ambition is something you have to try and get rid of. You dance at the discotheque That's why you look such a wreck Your face is pale, you look drawn Your paws are dirty and torn You've got the luck in your eyes That says you have the line And you're lost inside Meanwhile you're back in your cage yourself in a
Well, we've stayed on air longer than we planned to bring you that uh, interview and report by Robin Denslow. We very much hope that those of you who've been waiting up for the midnight movie have found the delay worthwhile and indeed enjoyable. On Newsnight, we'll be back on Monday at 10.50. Please join us again then. Till then, have a good weekend and good night. On January 22nd, at a private ceremony in a registry office in Bracknell in Berkshire, England, Ringo's 19-year-old son, Zach, marries Sarah Mandikitis. Ringo and Barbara stayed away from the ceremony to ensure that it be kept private. The Starkeys organize a small wedding reception for the newlyweds at Tittenhurst in Ascot on January 24th. The couple will live in a small cottage on the estate's grounds. It's February, and in America, the first licenses are issued for Beatles songs to be used in television commercials. in the face that'll stop your cold. Molson Canadian. The trouble is that we never did do commercials with the Beatles. We had lots of big offers from soft drinks companies, you know, to do stuff, obviously, but we always thought, now it kind of spoils it. To help reduce licensing costs, cover versions are used for Help, She Loves You, and A Hard Day's Night. The song Help was the first song licensed by any company. The cover version was also surprisingly produced by George Martin. It was used by Ford Lincoln Mercury. On February 25th, George Harrison celebrates his 42nd birthday. It is also reported on the 25th that George, Ringo, and Yoko, on behalf of the estate of John Lennon, sue Paul McCartney in the New York State Supreme Court for $8.6 million. The suit is filed for breach of contract, alleging that McCartney is earning a higher royalty rate from Beatles records as an incentive for him to sign with Capitol as a solo artist. Lawyers on behalf of Paul are quick to point out that although this may be true, Capital did not decrease the royalty payments to John, George, or Ringo. When they didn't like what I did, they felt that I was sort of nicking some yeah. of the Beatles Capital stuff. didn't take what the Beatles owned and gave it to you. Capital took what they owned They're and gave right. it to you yeah. because you, you were bargaining. If you do a record contract, you know, they keep a big bit right. and give you a little bit. Yeah, right. We had the little bit. So my lawyers said, well, give us a bit more of that big bit yeah. that's yours. Um, they could have asked for sort of some, a bit of the Beach Boys. Yeah. That wouldn't have been sensible, you <laughs> know. Um, so anyway, they did that, and uh, later I happened to mention to the guys that I'd done this, and they really hit the roof. I can see why, you know, because it looked like, well, also, we'd been so equal yeah. as the Beatles. It was really a four-way split every way down the line. But I pointed out, and we're no longer the Beatles. We just split up, you know, this is, this is what a split up is. We now go our own ways. So if I sort of get a deal, yeah. 
But anyway, it hurt them, and I can see why.
On March 2nd in the UK, there is another Beatle that has a bone to pick, but not only with McCartney, but with Harrison and Lennon as well. His name is Pete Best. Pete has just written a tell-all book along with Patrick Duncaster about the group's early days. Its title is Beatle, the Pete Best Story, a Plexus publication. Pete promotes the book on the Old Grey Whistle Test program on the BBC television network on March 5th. ...become rock and roll's most unfortunate and celebrated casualty. In this, the Pete Best Story, Beatle, by Pete Best and Patrick Doncaster. just written this uh, yep. Pete Best story. There's many possible reasons that you outline in there for why you were sacked. I mean, something as trivial as because you refused to comb your fringe forward or uh, George Martin said you were an inadequate drummer, yep. too much attention from the girls, not enough on them, incompatible personality. But you dismiss each one in turn. So after 22 years, yep. have you decided what was the reason you were fired from the Beatles? There isn't a specific reason you can give, but most of it counts, uh, looking back on it, that it was jealousy. You know, I was in fact becoming too popular um, for the, the era at that time. Right. It was a case that they turned around and said, OK. I didn't find out at that time. It was what people said afterwards. They turned around and said, Pete, you weren't aware of it. But, you know, it was becoming Pete Best and the Beatles. You were becoming the focal point. And they didn't like that. I find the book disappointing in one aspect, in that most of it's a very entertaining account of the hijinks in Hamburg and mm -hmm. uh, cavorting at the cavern yeah. and what have you. But... It's only the last chapter where you get down to dealing with how you've managed to live from day to day for the past 22 years as someone who's uh, had to carry this massive rejection. And yeah. Rejection is a, a basic human fear. What's it been like and, and how have you caught? Because you dismiss it fairly swiftly in those final pages. It's something which, okay, over a course of time, when it initially happened, it caused me a lot of grief, you know, resentment, bitterness. I've got to be honest about that. You, you tried at one stage to commit suicide, didn't you? That's right, yeah. I mean, okay, if I turned around and said it didn't affect my lifestyle, I'd be wrong, you know, I'd be totally sort of dishonest with the public and this is what I'm trying to get over to them. Do you think you've got over it now? Time has mellowed. I mean, yeah. it's a course of where, you know, natural progression. My lifestyle's changed a lot now compared what, what to what you it used now? to be. What do you do now? What's your profession now, if you... Believe it or not, I'm a civil servant. <laughs> Why has it taken 22 years for you to get around to writing your accounts? Initially, I didn't want to be the guy who jumped on the bandwagon. It would have been very easy for you to be a professional sure. ex-beat. A lot of people turned around and said, OK, take the money and run for the hills. You right. know, clean up on it, make a fast book. But it was something which, okay, um, I felt the more I read about Beatles literature, you know, Hunter Davis, the rest of the stuff, you know, all the biographies, uh, shout. This particular era in time where the story evolved and it was yeah. the formative part of the Beatles years, right. was never covered. You know, it was sort of covered in a couple of paragraphs, half a chapter. And there was such a lot went into those years which needs to be explained. Well, 
Should George Paul Oringo be watching this programme tonight? What would you like to say to him? Not a lot. All right. Well, Pete Les, thanks very much for coming in. Best of luck with your book. Let's take a look at you in your, uh, in your Beatles days. And uh, here, the first recording that was ever made by the Beatles. Where's the camera gone again? I never know this. And it was back in Tony Sheridan, recorded in a church in Hamburg in 1960. This is my bombing. On March 8th in London, on the BBC One chat show Wogan, John Lennon's first wife Cynthia is interviewed by host Terry Wogan. So now, another lineup of star guests at the invitation of Terry Wogan. Very few of us go through life on scales, but some people seem to have more than their share of emotional upheaval and tragedy. And my next guest is a case in point. But luckily, he's proved himself a person of great resilience, formerly married to one of popular music's greatest heroes and with a son who's well on the way to following his father's footsteps, Cynthia Lennon. Now, the, the first thing I have to say to you, Cynthia, is you look, and I have never met you before, you look exactly as you looked in those 60s pictures when you were still with John. That must be a terrible picture. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, is it, is it deliberate on your part? Are you, do you think you're sort of still in that time warp that, that you don't want to change? I mean, your hairstyle has remained the same, hasn't it? Well, it has changed in the years, you yeah. know, when everybody had per perms at a certain time. Uh, somebody talked me into having a perm, so I had my hair cut off, and I didn't feel me. Uh, this is me. This is the way I feel. Of course, but this is the thing, of course, Cynthia Lennon, nobody is ever going to let you forget that you were married to John Lennon. Do you, do you regret, in any sense, having met him, having married him? I feel... Well, that's a hard question, but... <laughs> Oh, no, I feel privileged. I feel very privileged that I was... I had a wonderful upbringing, wonderful childhood. I met a man who is remembered and loved still. And I now have a son who is also on a fantastic... Yes, we'll talk about Julian in a, in a moment, but you became public property as Mrs. John Lennon. Do you miss the fame that was attendant on that? Or is it, does it seem like a nightmare to you now? Well, fame is something that I've never looked for in life. No. I mean, fame is, is it's very hard to put fame in inverted commas. I don't know what it means. But the enormous fuss that was made oh, of you as yes. Mrs. John Lennon, I mean, do you look back on that with affection or, or, or horror? A lot of affection. I suppose a lot of horror as well on many occasions. But, I mean, that, that is the past. You know, that's a little bit like a lovely record you had in the 60s mm. or in the 50s. And you play it and play it, and it gets a little bit worn out, and it's cracked. And I'm a little bit tired of that record now, but I'd never break it. I would wrap it up carefully and put it away on the shelf. And I know it's there, but for other people, it's, it's a constant reminder. And people, when I'm interviewed, it's always about the Beatles and the ex-wife of the Beatles, etc., etc. Do you find it difficult to assert your own individuality? Has, has that been an enormous struggle for you? It has to a certain extent, um, mainly because of the responsibility of, of bringing up Julian. 
virtually on my own.
Throughout the next several weeks, beginning in March, Paul, having taken a beating in the press for his film Give My Regards to Broad Street, decides to get back in the studio and record a new album. He rings up Eric Stewart, whom he worked with, and asked if he fancied writing some songs for it. Paul McCartney. Yeah, I started writing with Eric Stewart, who used to be with 10CC, because in thinking about how I was going to approach the writing, the normal way I'd tend to do it, kind of post-Beatles, would be sit down on my own at a piano or with a guitar, just plonk away and wait till an idea came. But I remembered that the fun, half the fun anyway, of, of writing with John in the early days had been sitting over two acoustic guitars. That was the formula we always used. You know, he'd sit there, I'd sit here, we'd kind of change, change, you start in any key. It's easier than just looking at yourself. You know, it's much, obviously much more objective. So you could just look at what he's doing on guitar and sort of copy him or he'll copy me. And if you see him do something good, you say, oh, that's good. It's better than looking in a mirror. So I always found that like a very nice way to work because you're kicking off each other. If you see something bad happen, you can see it easier. If he suggests some words that are uh, good or crummy, it's easier to see than, than looking at, for stuff in your own brain. Eric Stewart. So we sat down in the studio with myself on acoustic or electric, Paul on acoustic or bass, Jerry Marotta on the kit, and just play the backing track through the three of us to retain that lovely spontaneity you can get that way.
When Eric first came to Paul's house to write, it was snowing, and the first thing he said on entering was, It's so beautiful outside. McCartney immediately started improvising with that line.
Paul, along with Eric Stewart on guitar, Jerry Maratta on drums, and Carlos Alomar on guitar, recorded these tracks at McCartney's Hog Hill Mill at Iklishem Rye in East Sussex, Paul's newly built recording studio. I've been putting my own studio together. Is that in your home? No, it's, it's about half an hour from where I live. Never put a studio in your home, Paul. Musicians come.
I'd done the music for Broad Street, and that had involved doing a lot of old songs. And that was nice to do, but it wasn't as exciting as doing new stuff. So I was, I like the idea of kind of uh, writing and recording new stuff. So it was, it was good fun. Eric Stewart. The main ends when we started the album were, were to produce something a lot hotter and uh, earthier than the previous two albums, Pipes of Peace and Tug of War, which Paul felt there were some great tracks on them, but some softish areas. We expected more, but with one thing and another, we were trying to outdo each other in the Tug of War. And I think he also had a desire to get back to some of the earlier recordings of the Beatles when you would, you would go in and record an album in a couple of days.
enjoyed working with a band again. This little nucleus I was talking about. He said he really did, he found it most refreshing. Um, I think George Martin actually suggested that he didn't really want to produce another album with Paul. He thought he should go back a little bit to a group situation. So I think it worked. November of 1984, Bill Wyman, bassist for the Rolling Stones, got together a group of well-known British musicians to record an album of old rock and roll songs. 
The band was called Willie and the Poor Boys, which included Charlie Watts, Bill Wyman, Garrett Watkins, and Andy Fairweather Lowe, along with Jimmy Page, Chris Rhea, Paul Rogers, and Kenny Jones. On March 11th and 12th, the core members of the band got together to make a film concert. Of course, when we did the album, we suddenly realized that there, was, there had to be a, a video. So we decided to make it like a small town, 50s style um, rock and roll show in the local hall. And for that, we tried to get as many people in as possible who were involved in the record. Yeah, great. Ringo Starr was recruited to play a janitor in the film. Okay, do I look like Gene uh, Vincent? After all, little Richard, how much have you put on? John of Arc. Burn me, burn me. He showed up at London's Fulham Town Hall without his usual beard and mustache. So I said to Bill Wyman the other day, Hi, Bill. Have you met Andy?
We thought you were one. It looked great. We love Bill. Scotty Shelly. We love Bill. Continuing in a moment, George lends a song to a comedy film. I am Blossom. Why do they call you Meat? Julian Lennon begins his North American tour. And the biggest rock event ever. Oh boy, this is Live Aid, and we're not just getting an assembly line of artists here today. I think we're getting some of the finest performances we've seen out of these bands. Now, once again, reminding you that we're going to be bouncing back and forth this afternoon from JFK Stadium to London, and we'll try to keep track with uh, which place we have. The Who walking off stage at uh, Wembley Stadium in London, reunited for Live Aid, the first time that they have played together since 1982. First time since 1982. The interesting thing now is collaborations and reunions are in everyone's mind, and there are two more that we're looking forward to. One that's going to happen on stage here at JFK Stadium with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, and we have gotten word that we have John Paul Jones joining in on bass. So that is the word that I just heard backstage, and that means a Led Zeppelin reunion. Phil Collins will be playing drums in that set. The other uh, reunion rumored is a reunion of George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr in London. Next on Yesterday on Today. Now what we're getting ready for, over in London, they are preparing for Paul McCartney. As a matter of fact, we see the Wembley Arena stage right now. The crowd is going crazy. Honey, it's time. Please don't have the baby yet. There could be a Beatles reunion. Paul McCartney, and we don't know who else. For more information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts Yesterday and Today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. (laughs) Wow. And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. You can head to our social media pages, that's facebook.com slash yesterdayandtodaypodcast or facebook.com slash thirdmen or you could head to society6.com slash kaminskyfamilypodcast that's society, the number six, dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I family 
podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. <laughs> Guys, we need your help. <laughs> Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. All right. We'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see oh, me. For God's sake.